Maybe you've given some thought to it before. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? You know, uh, there's a religious version of this question. It's kind of floated around through the ages, through the centuries, caused philosophers to scratch their heads. Perhaps you've heard it before. Can God make a rock that is so big that even He couldn't move it? Could God make a rock that is so big that even He couldn't move it? Really, the question goes to God's ability and to God's power, right? If the Bible teaches that God could do anything, then certainly He could make a rock so big that He couldn't move it. But yet, then you get in this quandary, well, wait a minute. If He can do anything, then He can move a rock, so it kind of just stuck. Now, the word omnipotence comes from a Latin word that means all-powerful or almighty. The Bible affirms that God is omnipotent. In Revelation chapter 19 and verse 6, it is the Lord, the omnipotent one, the almighty one who reigns. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, Paul is speaking of the invisible attributes of God. He speaks of his eternal power that's tied to the creation, that's tied to what we see in life. And we know that because of what we see, that God is an almighty and omnipotent God. So we're going to see today in Scripture, and we're going to see it stated and seen that God is omnipotent. Well, back to the question. Can God make a rock that is so big that not even He can move it? Theologian Wayne Grudem uh, helps us to understand what the fact that God is omnipotent actually means. He writes, God's omnipotence means that God is able to do all of His holy will. In other words, there is a limit to God's power. His character limits His power. In other words, He can't do something that goes against His character. Friends, that's why our God cannot sin. Our God is unable to sin. He's unable even to be tempted with sin, we're reading Scripture. He has no nature, no inclination to sin. And the same is true why God cannot build or make a rock that he would be unable to move because it would go against his character. Now, God's omnipotence is the foundation for another attribute of God, namely his sovereignty. Sovereignty has to do with his ability to rule, his power to rule. It has to do with his reign. He is sovereign because he is all-powerful. Now, this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 115, which is recognized as a liturgical psalm. In other words, this was a psalm that was, that was recited by worshipers as they would worship the one true and living God. In fact, many scholars would say this is a psalm of antiphony, meaning a worship leader would speak some of the psalm, and then the worshipers would respond uh, to what the worship leader is saying. And we go back and forth, and we're going to point that out this morning. Trying to identify the setting of this psalm when this psalm was written can be difficult. Some scholars believe that this psalm, Psalm 115, was written while the Israelites, while God's people, were in exile. That is, when God allowed the Assyrians and the Babylonians to come and to destroy Jerusalem, destroy the northern kingdom, and take them off into to captivity. Some would say this psalm was written during that time. Others would say, no, it's, it's less likely that time. It's more likely after God had had moved in the hearts of the pagan kings, and some people were headed back to, uh, to Palestine, back to 
uh, the area of Jerusalem and so forth. And this was a, written during the restored community time. They were still threatened. They were still under threat, but it was written during the restored community. Now, the fact that the psalmist doesn't recount any dire circumstances in this psalm, however, there seems to be some opposition. I would probably say that it was likely written in the post-exilic period, that is, the restored community time. But that said, let's read together in Psalm 115. So would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Aaron. Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth He has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord. From this time forth, And forevermore, praise the Lord. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you that your word teaches us that you are the omnipotent, that you are the sovereign ruler of all things. So as we study your word today, we pray your spirit would speak to us to confirm to us the truth that we would live for your glory. Because there is none like you. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, the people of Israel were conquered by the Assyrians. The people of Judah conquered by the Babylonians. And this was a big deal. That Jerusalem was overthrown and that God's people were carried off into a foreign land presented a problem for many. Right? God had made this everlasting covenant to King David, saying there would never be one of your sons who would not be on the throne of the kingdom. In other words, he's setting up this eternal kingdom where, where there would be a reign and a rule forever. But now, and for some period of time, there was no king in Jerusalem. And God's people were not living independently. So for a period of 70 years, we read from the prophets, there was a distant hope. In fact, for many, there was a shattered hope. And yes, it was hope, but, but it wasn't seen. It was brokenness. And all of this, according to God's plan, all of this prophesied as God would bring forth a punishment on His people to teach them. A punishment for their rebellion. Now, 
if this psalm originated in the restored community, then verse 1 is a communal praise, right? Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. So they're, they're seeing God at work. They're seeing God move. Things have been difficult, but now God is turning the hearts of the king and they are restored again and they are praising God together. They're humbling themselves and they're worshiping the one true and living God. But embedded in this communal praise is a continued plea for help. So first thing I want us to see this morning is this. God's worth and power declared. God's worth and power declared. This is exactly what verses 1 through 3 are about. Why should the nation say, where is their God? And the people respond, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. See, together, the people are saying, not to us, not to us, but to your name, give glory for who you are for your character, for what you have done, for your covenant faithfulness, for the fact that you are being true to your promises, we give you glory. For your steadfast love, you deserve glory. Yes, God had allowed them to suffer the consequences for their sin and for their rebellion, but He had not abandoned them completely. He did not give them what they ultimately deserved for their sin. Now, friends, it's good for us to remember that in times of difficulty, in times of chaos, in times of confusion, that God is still good and glorious. And we may not even understand everything that's happening all around us. Uh, our hearts might even be cold at times and, and just putting aside or or or. or, or Throwing off God's word at times. But it's good to remember that God is always good and always glorious. That He is the all-powerful One. Friends, this is what it means to walk by faith. When life is difficult, when life is tough, when we don't understand why things are the way they are, we are called to walk by faith. That is to walk knowing that God is on His throne. To walk knowing, being confident that God is worthy to be praised and that God is powerful. See, the psalmist has it right here. He's realizing that God is all-glorious, that He is faithful, that He is worthy to be praised no matter what. Frankly, the psalmist is declaring his dependence on God. He's declaring his dependence. The, the people together are declaring their dependence on God. They're, they're expressing their confidence in God in their changing circumstances. So the community answers this question, right? The, the nations all around them, they have been mocking. Oh, the Israelites, they thought they were strong and powerful. They had this big and great God. But look at them now. Their, their place is destroyed. They're living in captivity. And some of them are now back in the restored community. But guess what? They're still being attacked. There's still threats on their life. There's still things happening. And the nations are saying, where is their God? See, the nations would have never worshipped an invisible God. No, they, they made their idols, which we'll get to in a minute. But, but the Israelites, they're worshiping the one true and living God. Who is above all, who is over all. They said of 
the God of Israel, He's absent. He's not there. He's not real. He's not powerful. He's weak. He can't help you. Church, have you ever felt that way? Have times been so difficult in your life where you've wondered, where are you, God? Where are you? How can I get through this, God? Do you care, God? Will you help, God? Can you help, God? Now, don't miss this, friends. This is a corporate confession. The people together are saying, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Now, this isn't some distant, far-removed God. He's not like the stars up there, right? He's not like the constellations that we read about, that we've heard about. And we know they're up there somewhere, but frankly, we can't really find them. We don't even know really what we're looking for. It's not like God is just up there somewhere and, you know, he's looking down on us. No, he is a God who is present. Think, think the Lord's Prayer, right? Our God who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? God accomplishes his purposes because he is above all. He's not limited He is unlimited because He is over the heavens. He is over all things. So how do we see God's power? How do we see God's power? Well, we see God's power in creation. I want to read for you in Job. You can turn there if you want. Job chapter 38. Job, of course, is a man who's experiencing difficulty and struggle in his life. Trials and temptations are no stranger to Job. In fact, in many ways, it feels like his world is falling apart. And he gets into this debate with the counselors who come to try to encourage him to get right with God. And and he's questioning the counselors and he's even questioning God at some point. And, And then there's this dialogue between God and Job. I want you to listen. In Job chapter 38, I'm going to read the first 11 verses because God is declaring his power here. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? In other words, he's saying, Job, you don't know, you don't understand, you don't see. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched a line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors and when it burst out of the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. And we could continue reading. The point is this. God is powerful. He himself is declaring his power. He is saying, look, where were you? I did all this. You have no knowledge of this. I did all this. 
So we see God's power in nature, but we also see God's power in, in, in history and in future and in time and everything that is taking place in life, right? All that happens is under God's sovereign control. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 through 10. The prophet, God through the prophet Isaiah, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. You see what God is saying? God is telling his rebellious people that he's in control. That what is taking place in life, ultimately he is overseeing. But it's true in human life as well. We see God's power in human life. As I mentioned earlier, God is uh, saying he's going to punish his people for their rebellion against him. And he's going to use foreign pagan nations to do this punishment on his own people. But he promises them, look, 70 years, I, I have a plan. I know what's going to happen. And then in that, in that time frame, when that time is up, I will restore you again. You read about this in Jeremiah chapter 29. And then what do we read in Isaiah, excuse me, in Ezra chapter 1? That God is now turning the heart of the king, putting it on the king to send his people, God's people, back to their place. We read in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. It's like waters that, that he turns where he wants it to go. So we see God's power in nature. We see God's power in history and in life. We see God's power in the lives of individuals as well. See, the people here are declaring their confidence in God. And, and, and church, that's something that we need to see. They are reminding both themselves and they are reminding each other about who God is. So here's the question. How is God calling you to play that role in the life of someone else? How is God calling you to speak the word of God, the truth of God to each other, to those who are struggling. To remind others of God's great power and God's great love. And frankly, also to remind yourself of that as well. In difficult times, we're called to remind ourselves of who God is and what he has done. Well, next, uh, the psalmist here is contrasting God's worth and power with the idols. So the second thing we see here is God's worth and power contrasted. God's worth and power contrasted. So we're talking here about idols. Right? The 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 congregation is saying, look, our God is in the heaven. He does all that he pleases. But look at your gods. They have mouths but they can't speak. They have eyes but they can't see. They have ears but they can't hear. They don't make any noise from their throats. Your, your idols, your gods are created by human hands. They're, they're, they're your own imagination. They're powerless. Now, while the psalmist here is focusing on these man-made representations of the pagan gods, we know that idols 
that we face in life are things that become more important to us than God. They are things that we value or prize or prioritize more than righteousness. They are things that we sin in order to get or to try to attain, or they are things that we sin about when we don't get them or when we don't attain them or have them. They're things like control and possessions and status and comfort. Our own way, autonomy, it could be relationships, right? When such things become so important to us that we are willing to set aside God's word. These things, whatever they are, when these things become so important to us that we are willing to set aside God's clear word as we consider pursuing them or even anticipating them, then we can be certain that we are struggling with idolatry. We can be certain that we are struggling with idolatry. Now, here the psalmist is referring to tangible objects, as I said. They represent the gods that they are trusting in. This is what Paul would call, Romans chapter 1, the worship of the created rather than the creator. But notice the description. These idols are worthless. And they are just like the gods they represent. I think of First uh, Kings chapter 18 when the prophets, uh, when when. Elijah, the prophet of God, is facing the prophets of Baal. You know, 450 of them. And, and Elijah is going to look at the people and say, Look, how long are you going to go between two opinions? You either worship the one true living God, or you continue to worship this false God who can do nothing. And then they have this showdown, right? They're on Mount Carmel, and they have these two altars set up. They're going to, they're going to sacrifice a bowl, and they're going to, they're going to call out to, the, to their God. And the God who responds by fire is the true God, is the God who is worth listening to. So the prophets of Baal, they, they put their bull on the altar and they cry out, they dance for all day long, right? They're, they're cutting themselves, doing everything they can to get the attention of Baal. And it's silence, it's nothing. And then Elijah comes and he says, yeah, douse that bull with water. And then he prays and God consumes everything. Consumes the entire altar with fire. This is our God. Our God is powerful. He is omnipotent. He is sovereign. And he is over all gods. Psalmist says, those who trust in false gods will become like them. Powerless. Lifeless. Worthless. Hopeless. Now, in verses 9 through 15, we begin to see the back and forth, right? The worship leader speaks. He speaks to the congregation of the Israelites. He speaks to the, to the priests, the house of Aaron, to those who fear God. Maybe this is the assembly. Maybe this even includes some Gentiles who are God-fearing people who have come to and, and placed themselves into the company of the Israelites. And so there's this back and forth. And what we're going to see here, the third point is this. God's worth and power is remembered. God's worth and power remembered. Look again. The worship leader. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. And then the people would respond back. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. 
He will bless us. Now, because God is able to protect, we should trust Him. The psalmist says, He is their help and their shield. Psalm 46.1, In calamity, God is a refuge and a help. In Psalm chapter 3 and verse 3, when the enemy closes in, God is a shield to protect us. Now church, when the psalmist is calling us to trust in the Lord there, he's telling us to put our confidence in the Lord and to rely on Him. We need to understand what this looks like because this isn't a passive thing like, yeah, we believe there's a God. No, He's calling us to rely on the Lord, to, to live in daily dependence on the Lord. What does that look like for us? Is that just something that takes place in our mind? At some level, it is something that takes place in our mind because we rest in Him. But we rely on the Lord, friends, when we live for the glory of the Lord, when we live according to His Word. So I think this is tied to His Word. Why were the Israelites being punished? Why were they in captivity? Why were they in exile? Because they rejected His Word. They did not rely on His Word. They disdained His Word and thus sustained Him. So what does that mean for us? It means that when we say that we love the Lord and that we trust the Lord, that we embrace His Word. That we live according to His Word. How do we rely on Him? We submit to Him. We show that we trust and believe that His ways are good and perfect. That the way that He has... uh, Design life is good and perfect. That we filter our thoughts and our decisions and our desires and our agendas and our circumstances through what His Word says. And the truth of the matter is, this is tough at times, isn't it? Sometimes we look around us and it looks like everything is going good for everyone else, but not me. Sometimes it even looks like the wicked are prospering. But in those times, we're called to rely on the Lord. And that means rely on His Word. Rely on His design for life. Rely on what it looks like to seek righteousness. So we reject our own wisdom. We reject our own way and we submit to God. We act on His Word. We entrust ourselves to Him. path can look different Difficult, I know. And it can be tough to rely on His way, especially when it doesn't look like what we want in the moment. But this is what He's calling us to. Now, of course, we see God's help and protection most fully in His Son. Most fully in the person of Jesus Christ. When we were helpless in our sin, when we were in rebellion against God, when we were spiritually dead, when we were deserving of eternal death, we were deserving of God's wrath in hell, Jesus died for us. Jesus rescued us. And in Christ, through faith in Christ, we are covered as a shield from Satan's attacks. His accusations have no power over us because of Jesus' finished work. And yes, we sin. And yes, we fall short. But in Jesus, we are forgiven and we are justified fully. So God's people faced difficult circumstances, but they remembered God. 
They remembered God. So here's a question. Where do we go in the midst of those difficult circumstances? Do we go to reliance on God, believing God's word? Do we remember the finished work of Jesus Christ? When we face trials and difficulties, do we remember that God did not spare His own Son for us, but gave Him up, and will He not give us all things in Christ? Do we remember what He has accomplished and what He has promised? In response to this encouragement to rely and trust on the Lord uh, from the worship leader, the people expressed their confidence in God's blessing in His covenant faithfulness. The last thing I want us to see here is God's worth and power praised. God's worth and power praised. See, those who trust in the Lord, the psalmist is saying, will praise Him. Will praise Him because He is omnipotent, because He is sovereign, because He is all-powerful. And we need to see that one's praise for God is a sign of spiritual life. One's praise for God is a sign of spiritual life. The psalmist says the dead don't praise God. The dead don't praise God. Those who are spiritually dead, those who are reliving and rebelling against God, they don't live for God's glory. They live for their own glory. Their their slogan is life is not to God, not to God, but to me, to my name be the glory. But there is coming a judgment. There is coming a judgment for sin and rebellion. God is patient. But he will not ultimately share his glory with anyone else. And those who remain apart from faith in Jesus Christ, those who remain enemies of God, opposed to God, will suffer eternally away from His presence. But for those who humble themselves before God, those who fear the Lord, their future is secure and they will experience God's goodness and His grace forevermore. And friends, only the all-powerful, omnipotent, and sovereign God can secure our future. And only He is worthy to be praised. And friends, this truth should cause us to do some self-evaluation. This truth, that God is worthy to be praised, should cause us to do some self-evaluation. Are we living lives that show forth the glory of God? Is our desire to praise God? From my life, is there a reliance on God that accords to His Word that results in the praise and the glorification of our great God. Because we love Him, because He is worthy to be praised, we should live according to His design in life. Now, there's a difference, friends. There's a difference between going through the motions of religion. There's a difference between going through the motions of spirituality and actually praising God through the way that you love Him, you esteem His ways, And you live in the fear of God. If we merely praise God with our lips. But yet our lives do not accord to truth. Then we're living in hypocrisy. Friends, it's easy to praise God with our lips. It's easy to come here on a Sunday morning and to sing the songs. 
But are we seeking to live for His glory? Are we seeking to follow His Word? Are we seeking to live according to His design and live according to righteousness? That's the question. Because God's worth and power is praised by those who love Him. Now some of us may be thinking, well, wait a minute. If God is all-powerful, if, if this God is really this almighty, this sovereign, then why is there so much pain and evil in the world? And why is there so much suffering all around us? Now, to some degree, number one, that's a good question. But to some degree, we can't give an adequate answer that will, that will shut every voice of opposition. We understand that. It is true that God allows the existence of evil. In part because he allows us to freely choose what we desire. And apart from God's grace in Christ, friends, we are slaves to sin. And this is what we will choose. So it is true that God permits and directs and restrains and limits and even overrules evil. But it is also true that God is never the cause of evil and he never approves of evil. Now that said, God does accomplish his purposes through the evil that we see in this life. So we won't always know why there is sickness. We won't always know why there is suffering and pain and hurt and destruction. We live in a sinful and a broken world. But friends, what we do know is the God who oversees all things. We do know the omnipotent and the sovereign one. And we can rest assured that the one true and living God is all powerful. And the one who did not spare his own son, but he gave him up freely for us all, will one day make all things right. And again, friends, this is walking by faith. This is walking by faith. This is believing that, that God is there, that he's not like the stars. He's up there somewhere, but we really can't find him. And how do you walk by faith? It means you know him. It means you know him. You can't walk by faith in the way that we're called to walk by faith if you don't know him. And when I say no, I don't just mean I know there's a God up there, right? I know that the Big Dipper's up there somewhere. And sometimes I can find it. And I know that there's other constellations up there. Orion's Belt and Scorpius and all these other things, right? I have no idea where they are. I don't even know what they look like. Friends, do you know who God is? Do you know who God is? Are you studying to know who God is? How will you walk by faith if you do not know who God is? In difficulty, in trial, when things are falling apart all around you, you've got to walk by faith. You've got to trust I want to close this morning with some words from Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon, writing on sovereignty, says, There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them. There is nothing for which the children ought to more earnestly contend than to the doctrine of their master over all creation. 
the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne, for it is God upon the throne who we trust. We walk by faith. And if we belong to God, then we will live relying on and praising his great name. Now, in a moment, I'm going to pray, and we're going to transition to a time of reflection and surrender. And during this time, friends, if you have questions about what it means to be rescued from sin through Jesus Christ, then please come find us and talk to us. If you're interested in joining this church family, we'd love to share with you the process of how you can become a member here. Perhaps you just need to focus your attention on the greatness of God in these moments. Just quietly praising and praying and seeking Him. Spend time reflecting on His character, reflecting on His worth. If you need prayer, we're here. Friends, let's, uh, let's bow our heads. And then in a moment, we'll respond to our great God. Lord, thank you for your, your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you are the all-powerful God. That you are the one who goes before us. That you are the King eternal. That you are sovereign. And God, we do find great comfort and hope in your sovereignty. We find great comfort and hope knowing that you are in charge. And no, life doesn't always feel good. And it's not always easy. But we trust you. And help us, Lord, to trust you even more. Be at work, Father, in this room, in these lives, in this family. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and respond?